I'm the only first round draft pick ever from the state of Montana. Like there are more first round draft picks in the Manning family than the whole state of Montana ever. <laughs> This season of Half Forgotten History, we're partnering with Mercedes-Benz Sprinter Vans. I love the Sprinter Van. It's always a smooth ride, whether I'm headed to the course to play around or to the stadium for a really good tailgate. And just like the world-class athletes we talk to on this show, Mercedes-Benz Sprinter Vans go the extra mile. Hey everybody, what's up? Trey Wingo here. Welcome into another episode of Half Forgotten History. This week's guest is someone that is very special to me. I sort of launched my career at ESPN in 1997, and he was drafted second overall in 1998. And it did not go as planned for anyone when the Chargers took Ryan Leaf that year. But what Ryan Leaf was able to overcome through his life has been absolutely remarkable. And his story is worth telling, especially for all those kids that were just drafted and have high expectations. Sometimes the road is a lot more bumpier than you thought and how you persevere and come through the obstacles and challenges makes all the difference. Here now enjoy a very special episode of Half Forgotten History with my friend Ryan Leaf. Ryan, what's up, man? What's up, Trey? Thanks for having me, man. I'm really excited. Your career sort of coincided with my start of my career at ESPN. Like, I got there in 1997. You were drafted in 1998. I think the 98 draft was the first thing I ever really got to do a part of at ESPN. Our arc sort of went through the entire process together. And maybe that's why I feel some sort of a kinship to you. But everything that happened to you started right before this avalanche of social media, right? You, right. you were the, the last guy that really had sort of a, a lot of issues going through that didn't go through the grinder of social media. So I'm just curious to start, had you ever thought about that? How, how different things might've played out if this had happened three years later and you know Facebook and Twitter and all that stuff was, was sort of where it was as opposed to it was basically just traditional media when you were going through everything you went through. Well, it would have been a bit really difficult, but it hasn't it hasn't stopped it from from, you know, hitting me flat in the face. Because then, you know, after yeah. my poor play as a football player, my poor choices as a as a human being allowed for the grinder <laughs> then to start grinding it up. And I still get it to this day from trolls that just, you know, want to regurgitate past shortcomings and things like that. So I can fully understand what the guys are going through in terms of how difficult it would be to play a very public sport at a high level right now uh, with all the social media that exists. Cause you really, you know, it, it, it's, it's your choice whether you engage in the negativity or not. And we've just chosen not to uh, on our public platform, but I can definitely see the version of my brain in 1997, 98, yeah. 2000, or, or during my NFL career of it really like, you know, making it worse for me. If you could make it any worse for me at that time. Everything could always be amplified, right? Yes. There's no question about that. And I remember before you sort of started working for ESPN, you came up with us one time when we're in Bristol and we passed in the hallway. And I just wanted to reach out and talk to you and say, like, you know, so many people. And this is this is what I love doing about the draft. And I try to explain that to people. To me, I think fans have an unrealistic expectation of what the draft is. Like, for example, a team needs 
a tight end. So they draft a tight end. So in their mind is it's a commodity. Uh, we had a thing on our team that either was not good or was lost in free agency. So we need another thing to replace that on our team. And I always try to say, yeah, don't look at it as a thing. Understand that's a person yeah. like that's a human being. And I, and I think that's a hard thing for fans to realize. It's kind of like when you were a kid, right? In elementary school, and you went out to the mall and you saw your teacher in the mall and you're like, like what, what are that? you doing here? Right. You're supposed to be at the school. I don't see you anywhere outside the school. And I think fans sometimes, especially when it comes to their favorite players, especially young drafted players, see them that way, as opposed to, you know, young adults just trying to figure out life with a lot of time and a lot of money. We're so inundated with, with the NFL and the players in the NFL, we forget that it is a, we, we say this, we say this phrase, but it just kind of rolls off the tongue. It's the 1% of the 1% of the 1%. So we, we say it, right. so we acknowledge it, but we don't actually really believe it. There's 27,000 players that have played in the NFL over the hundred years of the NFL, 27,000. That would fit up what a quarter of an NFL stadium. If that, it is a minuscule number. And the idea that every one of us are going to be successes in the eyes of these these fans is ludicrous because we're already successes. We already made it to something that that no one expected any of us to make it to or ourselves, to be frank. And so, yeah, those expectations are really high. And when you act as a human being, people are astonished. Like, how could he make such poor choices? He has the world in the palm of his hand. How is that even possible? Well, go look in the mirror. What what poor choices have you made? Just because He's a great football player. Doesn't make him any good at making, you know, lifestyle choices at all, you know, and that that's hard to do. And you're, that's a great example. Seeing your teacher in the, the mall, like what, why aren't you in your cage? You know, this is, this is, yeah. this is the out of the ordinary for us. So when people see you acting um, normally for a 21 year old um, locally in your community and, and uh, all the stories are the next day is about how you wear your hat backwards is the problem with you. You're like, what is, how is this? You know, what, how, I, I don't know what's going on here. And my, my way was to just, you know, how I always dealt with it. I, I would hit back as hard as I could. Difference was I always could go out and play really well. And at that level, when you're dealing with all the other trash, if you don't play well, it's not going to matter. You can, you can be yeah. the worst possible person or version of yourself in the NFL. And if you ball out, it doesn't matter. You're the commodity. That's all that anybody cares about you doing, not how you're feeling at home at all. That's not the purpose. So we'll get into the NFL and the draft in a little bit, but I, but I want to go back to your days at Washington State. When did you think, like, when did it sink into you as a college player or even as when you were a high school player? Hey, I, I think I could be really good at this. Like when, when did everyone has the dream, right? I want to be drafted. I want to play in the NFL. Uh, but when did you start thinking this really might be a reality for me? maybe the lead up to the Rose Bowl and the Heisman Trophy when I was all of a sudden in the room with the likes of Peyton Manning and Charles Woodson and Randy Moss. And by the way, you, you always put out a great picture every year. I have to, I have to acknowledge you. You, you put it out there. It's you, Charles Woodson, Peyton and Randy Moss. And you say three hall of famers and a bust. You put it out there every year. I just, I, it's one of my favorite things that I look for every year. <laughs> well, it's pretty cool. It was a pretty cool night to be a part of that group. I think probably that was when I started to see it. Hey, I'm, you know, I'm from Montana. I'm the only first round draft pick ever from the state of Montana. Like there are more first round draft picks in the Manning family 
than the whole state of Montana. Ever. So <laughs> there's no trailblazer. I didn't, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't supposed to make it there. I wasn't supposed to make it out of the state, let alone to the NFL. The Heisman night was probably a precursor a little bit. And then people really talked me up leading to the Rose Bowl. And when I kept hearing the thing, if he chooses to leave early, he probably could be the first or second overall pick in the NFL draft. And then you're like, okay, so this is what all the hard work was about. You're, you're here now, you know, don't mess it up. And, uh, and that off season was, was wonderful. You know, it was everything I expected it to be because it was all about me. You know, if you were a high draft pick and you are a narcissist, that's the coolest place to be because everything's about you. Everybody's talking about you, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent. And every team wants you because you're the hot new thing on the street with the rocket arm, you know? And, and, uh, I mean, who could have asked for anything more at that time? Boy, you're not kidding about that rocket arm. And we, we talk a lot about Mahomes and Josh Allen, but like you were the first guy that I was like, dude, you got a hose. Like you, I could see you just flick that thing. So, so you mentioned if you're a narcissist, this is great. Cause it's all about you, but see that that's the conflict, right? Because to be successful, you have to kind of be a little bit of that guy, right? You, you have to sort of buy into, no, I'm the alpha. I'm the male. I'm, I'm going to get it done. I'm, I'm the top dog here. Of course. Hell yeah. I'm that good. And so then becomes that, that really interesting fine line between, between believing in yourself and doing that thing and then going overboard and allowing those personality traits that we all have. And it's easy to do when everyone's like, Oh yeah, great job. You're the best. Number one, you're the dude. That's the fine line that you had to start walking. And is that when it became a little bit of a problem? Probably and the money exacerbated it. Okay. I mean, even when you're getting, even when you're getting ready for the draft, you don't have any of the money. So it's, you're still relying on other people, but all of a sudden, um, the idea of success for me was money, power, and prestige, right? I, I don't, I'd learned that to be the truth. So I had all the money in the world, the prestige that came with that as a starting NFL quarterback and the power of that, I thought I was a success. And, uh, and, and we won our first two games too. You know, first time a rookie had done that since John Elway in 1983. So I can deal with success. Okay. It was about how I dealt with failure. You know, when we lost games in college, I went into a stupor, like coach had to pull me out of it by doing motivational things, making highlight videos, talking to me because I just, I, I, I hated losing competition was my drug of choice my whole life until I gave it up. So yeah. that was the problem. Failure was the problem. And, you know, won a state championship in high school, won a, you know, play for a national championship in college. I just assumed I'd play for a Super Bowl championship at the next level. And I didn't think my career would end after one game, but I don't remember a positive thing after that happening, even though I stuck around for three more years. But I rem that, that game in Kansas City, not how I played, but how I dealt with it after the fact was the end of my career, how I dealt with failure in the face of everything. That's the difference. Don't, don't, if you don't recall, Peyton led the NFL in interceptions his rookie year. I don't know if I could have... I don't know if I could have dealt with that. Still has the record for most rookie interceptions. Um, so we'll get to the failure part in a minute, but I, I, I want to I talk about the run-up to the draft because there was a real choice that was being made because you knew the Chargers because of the trade they had made previously. They had the picks. They were going to move up there. They were going to take a quarterback. Indianapolis had the number one pick. I mean, you know, 
all these years removed, 22, 23 years removed from it now, 21 years removed. Well, of course Peyton Manning was going to be the number one overall pick the way it all played out. But no. that was not the overriding sentiment at the time. It was, it was not, oh, of course Peyton Manning is going to be the number one pick. There was a real struggle from a lot of people wondering whether the Colts were going to go with you or Peyton Manning. Yeah, people have a um, you know, much different opinion from 30,000 feet. Uh, but yeah, that's what it was. It was along party lines, you know, 50-50, if not uh, in the direction of me, to be honest with you. And Bill Polian talks about You had the, the stronger arm. You, you had the stronger arm of the two. Yeah, I was stronger arm. I was more athletic, probably. If you recall, ESPN, the magazine did a spread about kind of the golden boy in the, in the dark, you know, the kind of the, the dark magic side of me. You know, the picture of him was in a gold polo feathered hair. There's a picture of me was in a smoking jacket, standing on the beach, firing a football. You were the bad boy. You know, I didn't tell them that was wrong. You know, I didn't go, Hey, this, this bothers me. Um, you know, that's always kind of been the case for me. I never, never, never expressed how things made me felt. I just figured I would play well on the football field and, and it didn't matter what anybody ever said about me or anything like that. That's how I would win. So there was that incident at the combine, which really was not an incident. I mean, there was a there was a there was a mix up, right? You're supposed to meet with the the, the Colts and and uh, Jim Mora and Bill Polian, and there was there was a scheduling snafu, right? Wasn't that what it was? Yeah, the Chicago Bears uh, had gotten a. Uh, they wanted to take a look at my thumb because I broke it in high school, and so they wanted to do a MRI or a scan or something like that. So, so they sent me to the hospital. Um, now, the story got blown out of proportion as that I skipped it on purpose. And then Lee Seinberg, my agent at the time, had kind of perpetrated that even further with like, uh, hey, you know, what would be the best way to not go to Indianapolis? Hey, missed the meeting with Jim Mora, Ryan at the Combine. That was never that was never a conversation we had. I just I had to go do a do an MRI. And uh, now it worked out because it pissed off Jim Mora and the Colts. And then we pretty much knew that I wasn't going to go there. And that's what we were, we were, we were angling towards that. You know, I wanted to be on the West coast. I wanted to be the beach, babes, money, all that stuff that, that I thought I wanted or liked or, and everything on San Diego was the, the perfect fit. And I had family down there too. So I just, I felt like I did, I wasn't having, a, I didn't have an issue being the second overall pick. I've looked at it us as, Picks one A and one B. So it's interesting, right? Because I, I think Jim Mora was leaning towards Peyton at that point. And I think he used that to sort of amplify, hey, see, this is why I want this guy, right? That was sort of the spin he put on it, right? Yeah. There's a lot of stories out there around, you know, what, bottom line is they made the right choice. You know, they did their due diligence. The guy walked in, said, if you don't draft me, I'm going to kick your butt for the next 15 years. And he would have done it. Uh, they believed him. You know, if I walked in and said that, they may have thought it was bravado. But there's a bunch of stories out there about things that I didn't say to Bill Polling about when camp is. Oh, I can't be there. Me and my buddies are going to Vegas or something like that. It's just, just absurd things that that aren't true. The bottom line is that they thought he was the best fit, made the right choice, and and experienced uh, a Super Bowl championship and great years of, of quarterback play for for a long, long time. Why don't we take a break here? And when we come back, we'll talk about those first couple of games, the first couple of weeks, and then when it all sort of got sideways. Stay with us. Half Forgotten History with one of my favorite guys that I've ever covered. No lie, swear, Brian Leaf. 
This episode is brought to you by Mercedes-Benz Sprinter Vans with options like blind spot assist and active lane keeping assist, plus MBUX voice command technology for directions, weather forecasts, comfort control, and more. Mercedes-Benz can be ready to go the extra mile. I use it every time I head to the golf course. The handling is amazing, the ride is smooth, and trust me, you never run out of space. Thanks again to Mercedes-Benz Sprinter Vans. Uh, back with Ryan Leaf on Half Forgotten History. Thanks to our friends at Mercedes-Benz for helping us go the extra mile. And Ryan, so you take the second overall pick, you go to the Chargers, and I read somewhere that one of the first things you said, or you did after you were the second pick, you went and looked at real estate. From your perspective, looking back, that maybe my head wasn't in the right place at that time, because your first thought was, hey man, let's go get a cool place to live and I'll figure out the other stuff later. I don't know. I mean, I took the playbook with me, so I, I, it's... You can, you can point to different things. You got to find a place to live. What I should have done is I should have got a place right down the street from the facility that just had exactly what I needed, a place to sleep. And that's it. You know, everything else. But I mean, I didn't think money was going to change me. I didn't. I grew up with a real frugal upbringing. My father and mother made me never want for anything, but it was never superficial in any way. My dad's a, you know grassroots build from the bottom um, businessman. And, and so they laid out a, a great game plan. I just, I didn't think money would change me, but I had developed that idea that money was everything. Fame is everything. That's, that's what made you better than everybody else. And now I had it. So I better have a house that could reciprocate that, you know, and, and the right car. I mean, the silliest things at 45 years old now, I'll be 45 in about a month. You know, the idea that um, those things were important. I, what a fool, what a fool I was. Yeah. That's just the, the plain, simple. Um, I love playing football. Uh, I, I worked just as hard as playing football as I did playing uh, off the field. I did. Um, but I, you know, you just can't afford to, do the stuff off the field for a few years. You have to find your footing in that league before you do anything else. You have to see, look at yourself as the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. And I simply didn't do that. Well, it's hard to do when you're 22 years old. And, you know, like, like it's, it, I feel like you're being so critical of yourself, which is awesome. But it, like most people would have done what you did. Like, you know, I mean, that, that's the thing that people don't understand. Literally, at 22, I wasn't thinking about those things. I was thinking, where are we going next? You know, and it just happens to be magnified with time and money with someone that's in your position. But as you said, you went through training camp and, and you end up starting week one and you win those first two games. So after you won those first two games and the comparisons were coming out, as you said, first rookie to do that since John Elway. When did you start to think, OK, this might work? I felt good, you know, after the after the Tennessee Oilers game, uh, beat Steve McNair and Eddie George and that Jeff Fisher team on the road week two. And all of a sudden I'm doing the commercial for CBS Sports uh, afterwards, holding a, a, a Pepsi bottle that my manager put in my hand uh, because now I'm sponsored by Pepsi. Just thinking, oh, now we're going to fly home and I'm going to go party with the my new offensive line boys. And this is this is. This is everything, right? This is what I expected it's the dream. to be, you know, and then we had some hiccups, you know, like Tuesday, I got really sick and we didn't know what it was. And they put me in the hospital. Turns out I had a staph infection from sliding on that turf at Vanderbilt Stadium the week before and the, the turf had melted in and it wasn't cleaned out properly. So I had a staph infection. So I was in the hospital the entire week leading up to the Kansas City game. And I remember my mom on 
Friday night before flying to, to Kansas City begging me not to play. I mean, she begged me not to play in the game. And I just looked, you know, looked at her like she was absolutely foolish. Um, she's always known me pretty much pretty well, uh, having raised me. But there was no way I was not going to play in that game, right? Uh, on the road, in the hospital all week. What a story. And I played the worst football game of my life. Uh, it was humiliating. Everybody has an NFL moment as a rookie. This was mine. Yeah. What I did, how I responded to it, was how I ended my career. I yelled at a, uh, um, a cameraman who banged into me in the locker room after the game. I remember that. I dressed him down. Turns out, I don't know who, it turns out he worked for the team. Um, and then in the locker room, uh, the beat reporter was in there. He saw it. He wrote about it the next day. So while I was driving into the facility Monday morning. Uh, you know, I heard about it, uh, you know, so everybody in San Diego was hearing what a bad, petulant child loser I was. And I confronted him after the, the gaggle and I threw his, threw his ass into the chair. And then you hear the, the iconic caricature of me of knock it off and screaming at a junior coming in to, to pull me out and throw me in the shower to cool me off. And then the next day, uh, giving an uh, a very insincere apology crumpling it up, just kind of throw it into the locker because I didn't want to give the apology. I thought the guy baited me and, and put me in a situation because um, I thought I was the victim. And there was not a good moment after that. I had some some good moments in my third year, um, but they hired a, a coach that, of course, I didn't get along with, and Mike Riley, who was very unconfrontational. Um, had some great times in Tampa Bay with Tony Dungy and that that crew. Um, Jim Harbaugh was my backup my third year in San Diego. He taught me a ton about being a professional and then ended up in Seattle at the very end after a quick stint with the Cowboys and my career was over, you know? So it was, it's amazing that you can point to one moment, one choice, the choice by me to deal with that failure in the way that I did cost me my career. Cause it, the stone just started rolling after that and it just gathered speed and more moss and, uh, you know, I could, I could never get out of the chaos. I just couldn't, I couldn't get, couldn't get out of my own way. As it was going through that hellaciously bad downturn, what were you thinking in terms of how, how do I fix this? Cause you just said failure was the biggest issue for you. Like success was not a problem, but failure was how maddening was it that you couldn't figure out how to fix it? I, I always just thought of just give me another opportunity on the football field. I'll, I'll do what I've always done best and I'll make it work. I just always thought there was next opportunity for that. I was just delusional that you battling the, the demons that you're dealing with, the, the media, your teammates, the organization from Sunday to Sunday, your essential nervous system is just on tilt. I, I didn't realize like how exhausted I was by the time we got to game day on Sunday that I just, you know, I wasn't my, the best version of myself at all. Uh, that's why it's so impressive to see these guys do this week in, week out. But you see what they sacrifice. You just watched one of the greatest of all time retire uh, this year in Drew Brees. And, you know, he literally was the first guy in and the last guy out. You know, I yeah. wasn't that guy anymore. I hated being in the facility. I hated being around my teammates. I loved it in college, right? You could not get me out of the facility. Coach Price would have to come wake me up in the morning because I fell asleep watching film in his office. Where did that guy go? You know, I was mentally ill. I was mentally ill. I was dealing with post-traumatic stress and social anxiety and all of that. And I didn't understand it. And I was going through it at the time. 
but you can't say anything like that because you're the big, strong football player. I mean, of course, I didn't know what it was. I wasn't diagnosed or, or anything like that. And, you know, I'd never heard anybody in the locker room go, hey, I, I'm really struggling with this. Can, can one of you guys help me? Never heard that. Probably, I don't know if we've still ever heard that in an NFL locker room. So it's interesting. The only person I've heard that sort of talks about that and in recent time and been very open about it was Gronk when he retired from New England before he came back. You know, he said, look, I was in a bad place. Like football, the thing that had given him so much joy was now the thing that was driving him crazy. And I feel like that's sort of the situation that you were in. It had given you everything, yet now it feels like it had turned against you and you couldn't figure out where that 180 came from. Yeah, I couldn't. And I didn't, I didn't rely on anybody to help me either. You know, I, I figured I still had what, was, what those ideals of success. I had all this money and the power that came with it and the prestige may have a bit of a tarnish on it. But hey, you know, former NFL quarterback still gets you in the door at, at clubs or whatever, you know, yeah. people recognize you and it's, you know, the fame part of it. So I, I figured I'd still have that. And so I quit, you know, I just walked away instead of telling coach Holmgren, all these things in his office, like, Hey, I'm having real, real hard time sleeping. I can't get out of bed. I feel sad all the time. Can you, can you help me with this? Instead of telling him that I just, I just quit and thought I would, would be okay. You know, everybody would forget about me, but I was, I was drafted up alongside arguably the greatest to ever play. And the draft happens every year. And my name gets, re- gets brought up every time. Don't pull, you know, don't, don't draft another Ryan Leaf. You know, don't, don't have another um, bust like Ryan Leaf. So for somebody who cared so much about what other people thought of him, I didn't realize how much damage that was causing me internally after I had walked away from the game. Like, I still lived in San Diego. I couldn't go out in public. Um, I, I felt so judged and less than at all times. And I was, I was just looking for a way out of that. And that was to not feel any of that stuff. And ultimately that's what it, what it took me to. It was not feeling anything. When did you start to realize that might be a problem? Well, I didn't realize it was a problem for a long time. Um, yeah. well, let me put this, let me rephrase that. When did you start doing, the, uh, doing, using, using a lot more to make sure the pain wasn't driving you crazy? Well, I'd like to blame my poor career on, on drug use, you know, but I just, I wasn't, I wasn't a good player. Um, I didn't start using until about four or five months after I quit and I was in Vegas for a fight. It was a Mike Tyson fight. I liked going to Vegas, showing everybody that everything was okay. Still this rich, famous guy that can afford ringside seats and limos. I mean, it's just the, the bullshit. And, uh, and after the, the fight, there, there were parties where there were former Super Bowl champs and Hall of Famers, and I was where I always felt less than and judged in those rooms, and uh, an acquaintance of mine offered me some Vicodin. And now I'd taken Vicodin before. I've had 15 orthopedic surgeries during my lifetime playing football, so it was always given to me you know, post-op, and it worked. There's a reason why they're called painkillers. They take away your pain, and this would be the first time that I actually abused them and took them kind of for the emotional need to remove that pain. And I would walk, I took them with the alcohol I was drinking that night and I walked in and out of those parties and I didn't feel any of that. I didn't feel less than, I didn't feel judged. I didn't feel better. I just didn't, didn't feel anything. And I think I've been searching for that for a long time, just not to feel anything and it worked. And that would lay out the next eight years of my life, chasing that feeling of not feeling anything. That's what the next eight years of my life would be.
Seems like a really good time to take another break. And uh, so we'll, we'll stop right now. We'll come back with Ryan Leaf. We'll talk about when he, he knew he hit rock bottom and then the things that you've done, which have really, in my opinion, made you one of the great success stories I've ever seen. We'll be right back with more from Ryan Leaf on Have Forgotten History. It's a fact the hits literally keep on coming from one boxing event to the next. They grow in excitement and anticipation. And this weekend is no different with two of the sport's most respected fighters stepping into the ring Saturday night. And there is no better place to get in on all the action than DraftKings Sportsbook. You know it as America's top-rated sportsbook app. For this weekend's fight, DraftKings is offering all new users a chance to turn $1 into 55 bucks. It's real simple. To celebrate this weekend's huge event, DraftKings Sportsbook is offering new users the opportunity to get 55 to 1 odds, 55 to 1 on either main event fighter to win this weekend's fight. Plus, we got basketball and hockey playoffs right around the corner. DraftKings Sportsbook has even more ways for you to literally make it rain. DraftKings Sportsbook app is safe, secure, and reliable, meaning you can deposit and withdraw your funds totally at your convenience. Download the top-rated DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use the code WINGO. When you sign up for a limited time, all new users can bet $1 to win $55 on this weekend's main event. That's right, DraftKings Sportsbook is going all out for new users by offering them the chance to win $55 when placing a $1 bet on this weekend's big fight. Only at DraftKings Sportsbook, must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only, new customers only, and some restrictions do apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details. And if you have a gambling problem, call 1-800-GAMBLER or 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana. Uh, back with you once again on Half Forgotten History. Delighted to be with Ryan Leaf as we talk about his journey from being an NFL player to ending up in jail and finding meaning in his life. Right before the break, we talked about you realized the next eight years of your life were chasing the pain. And there's that infamous photo of you being carried. Was it in Wisconsin, a casino in Wisconsin by those two guys in and out of Montana, the, out of the, Montana excuse me, Montana, in and out of the casino. Um, when at that point, when you were using the Vicodin and the alcohol and, and chasing it just to just to not feel, not to feel better, but just not to feel and deal with it. When did you have that moment when you looked in the mirror and said, I, I can't anymore. This is this is this is it for me. This is the bottom. Well, I don't think I ever had that moment. Uh, I think there were a lot of nights where I looked in the mirror and said, you are you are a junkie. You need so much help. But I just I couldn't stand having those feelings that I had to numb them. Like ultimately at the end, I ended up back in my hometown where I'm supposed to be the hero, right? The, the only Montana ever drafted in the first round. Instead, I'm vilified and, and hated. And I'm living in a little apartment or house in the back near an alley. And I'm thinking the first thing I wake up in the morning is, do I have pills? And if I didn't have any, how do I get them? And that was my day. And I had a ton of shame and guilt around what I was, who I was and what I had to do to get them. I'd go to friends' houses pretending I was interested in spending time with them and go through their medicine cabinets till ultimately I was going to open houses, pretending I was interested in buying the house and rummaging through their medicine cabinets. And, you know, nine times out of 10, I'd find some pills. And psychologically, it was everything was fine. They weren't even in my system yet, but I knew everything was going to be fine because I didn't have to feel any of it. I had all this shame and guilt around what I had to be, what I had, be, what I became and what I had to do, but it was all taken away. So it's this vicious cycle 
that exists. And all those nights that I kept clamoring for somebody to help me, finally, you know, my higher power, I guess, and his infinite wisdom and humor uh, said, you just don't get it. Uh, so I'm going to send the sheriff's department to help you. And uh, that's what happened. Sheriff's department showed up and arrested me and essentially saved my life. They come and take you to jail and then you get out of jail and you, you talk a lot about the things you started to do when you first got out of jail and it felt like it gave you a purpose and working with one certain organization that really sort of got you on your path. I think, well, I think while in prison changed the path, I learned about being of service. Um, our roommate of mine got me out of my own self and got me down to the prison library and helped prisoners who didn't know how to read, learn how to read. And that's where the first time I heard vulnerability in a man where you're not supposed to show any in prison, of course, but here's this 50 year old man who can't read, look me in the eye and say, Ryan, Hey, can you help me here? I can't read. And I mean, that just shook me right to the foundation of that's, we don't do that. Right. We, we buck up and we figure it out on our own, but that hasn't worked for anybody ever. Yeah. Ever. And so when I walked out of there, I knew that was going to have to be at the foundation being of service to others. And so I started doing that. Once I got out, I went to treatment. Once I got out, I'd stayed sober in there, but I wasn't, you know, I wasn't clean. Uh, I needed to work on my physical and mental health. Like you wouldn't believe did 90 days of that started working for a company called transcend recovery community that gave me a job driving around newly sober people, being a manager at one of those sober living houses. And, and this was 2015, right? Is this about 2015? Yeah, I got out December 3rd, 2014. And this was around May of 2015. And um, that's where it started. I didn't plan on being the public eye again. My boss, who became my business partner in this company, he just saw something bigger and brighter. He's a sports fan. He knew how much my story impacted him and how it would impact others. So we started speaking to local schools around the area here in Los Angeles, trying to give back. And it wasn't my intention to be public. I went up to the Super Bowl in San Francisco to get my health screening from the, uh, from the trust. And while up there, I was introduced to the NFL legends community, which then introduced me to radio row, which I hadn't been on forever. And a friend of mine, a comedian friend of mine, who does a lot of Super Bowl stuff and radio hits took me with him. And people looked at me like, Oh my God, who is, why is he here? And I just needed him to kind of help guide me through it. And I just started telling my story publicly. Yeah. I remember. And it was right around the time Johnny Menzel had gotten in some trouble. So there was something that people could tie in together and, and I could, I could relate to. And that's kind of where it started. ESPN called me after that. E60 wanted to do a documentary. I told them, you're not going to just come for a week and do a puff piece. You're going to come for minimum 18 months. So there's evidentiary proof that like there is a shift in perspective with me. And at first they weren't really on it. But Tom Rinaldi was like, yes, we'll do what. Yes. And they gathered 18 months worth of 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 content and we did a couple interviews and then they went to air with it and it yeah. wasn't everything I wanted it to be because I'm too close to it but the impact it's had on people who are struggling has been massive and that's ultimately why we do this it can never be about me again yeah. the reason I do this with you today is the hopes that someone who listens to your podcast hears something that gives them a bit of hope because when I walked out of prison I didn't have anything but that but hope 
And it's a powerful, powerful thing. And there is a solution. And that's the only reason why I continue to do this. I try to be as accountable for everything I've done and continue to do. I know I'm a flawed human being trying to be better every single day like everybody else. Just because good things have happened the last few years doesn't mean it can't all go away in an instant if I don't do the next right thing. That's important to remember for me. And uh, so the draft every year, maybe it's helping me out to be a constant reminder of like, hey, here, remember when you were such the asshole? Here you go. Here you go. Here's a, a, a full mouth scoop of it uh, for you to endure and, and get past. Well, I, I got to tell you, I remember you were on NFL Live with us that that week up, yep. up in San Francisco. And I asked you a question and I really didn't know how you're going to answer it. And I'm not going to lie to you. It's one of the greatest answers anyone has ever given me because I just the irony of it struck me. Here you are, you know, newly sober, out of prison, a little over a year. And we're on a set at the Super Bowl site, Super Bowl 50, like the Golden Super Bowl. Like, you know, couldn't be any better for the Golden Boy to win Peyton Manning at the Golden Super Bowl. And I asked you the question. It was very simple. I said, you're here with me on the set, having gone through all you've gone through. Well, the guy was taking one step ahead of you is about to step on the field in the 50th Super Bowl, play in his fourth Super Bowl and potentially win his second. If you had a chance to talk to Peyton today, what would you say to him? And I'll never, ever forget your answer because you, you, you turn sideways for a second. You're on the set with me and Herm and Stink and Teddy Bruschi. And you looked at me and you just said, I'd ask him how he did it because I couldn't do it. And I, I have no idea how he was able to navigate everything that I couldn't. And I thought that was one of the most honest, interesting, unique answers anybody has ever given me. And it's stuck with me. We're, we're, we just finished Super Bowl 55. You know, I'm five years removed from that moment. And every time I see you, that's the first thing I think of. Here we are talking about potentially one last Super Bowl for Peyton Manning when you guys were in the same draft class, literally one pick apart. Mm. I, I'm, I'm really proud of him. It's hard not to be proud of a man who stands up in what he stands for, I think. He would be the one person I probably could be resentful of. But I'm, I'm just not. I'm happy for him. I'm happy the way he, he conducts himself. And I'm not necessarily, there's a, there's a saying in my program that is, when you see somebody who has what you want, you go ask him how he got it. And it's not about what he did on the football field, really. It's about how he's conducted himself, his family, everything like that. Proud of him. Well, it, it comes down to what my sponsor has helped me do is you walk into these rooms uh, and you see these men who have found this peace in unchaotic life. And he says, go up to them and ask them how they did it and then follow their advice verbatim. And so when I talk at the rookie symposium or I talk to these rookie quarterbacks that are coming into the league, that's what I tell them. I say, once you get into that locker room, everything's done. This, the hoopla of you being the great number one overall white hope and all this thing, it's, it's, it's not anymore. Go find the guy that's played 10, 12 years in the league and is a true professional asked him how he did it and then follow his advice verbatim. It's the best advice yeah. I've got. Wish I would have gotten it going into the league. I would have walked up to junior Seau and Rodney Harrison and said, teach me instead of, I said, I just wanted to pal around with them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's the difference. And so that was, yeah, that was just an honest answer because guess what? When I'm hosting radio shows and TV shows now, and I talk to guys who played with the greats, we had, uh, we had the new Orleans Saints center on our show the other night. And I asked him about Drew Brees. And I said, I mean, you don't know it when you're in a, in that moment, but when you step away and you realize you played with somebody yeah. great, like, how did you know? 
And yeah. every story I hear about Peyton Manning, who played with Peyton, he just there was a there's a different person it takes to be successful at a quarterback in the NFL. That's why that's why there's only like you know every every year there's 12 guys you can say are are great probably. Right. Right. And that's a small small number. So yeah. So I I you know post career uh, post prison I've really tried to dive into like you know what. You know, when I talk from when I talk to Peyton from time to time, I'm sure he gets sick and tired of me asking questions. But I always ask him questions about what did you do here? Why did you do this here? What made you so successful here? And he's just like, "Come on, Leaf, man, let's play some golf. We're just you know, I'm <laughs> retired five years. Let's stop. We don't need to talk about this anymore." But I'm just like, I'm so fascinated with because him and I were in the exact same spot with the exact same opportunity, and he flourished so much, and I failed so much. I just I'm fascinated by the by the juxtaposition of it, and it's. You know, it's it's a cool thing to study because I want to uh, I want to do what I'm doing now for a, a long time as a profession. And I want to understand the guys that are coming in the league and who have, you know, the right, you know, the, the right all the right moves, essentially, to, to, to be the greats. As Ted Lasso says, be curious, not judgmental. Right. I mean, yep. that, that, that's sort of and you are very curious right now. And I love following you on Twitter because you post and, you're, hey, it's a struggle. Every day is a struggle, but I'm working on it and I'm moving forward. And you are succeeding now and you are flourishing. So that Ryan Leaf that walked out of that jail with nothing but hope. Did you ever think at that moment that you would be the Ryan Leaf that you are now? clean, successful, helping people and doing something that you love and finding a way to navigate it. Hell no. I, to be honest with you, I, I, you know, though I had hope, I probably assumed I'd be back in prison or dead. Um, that's just the mindset I had, but luckily I had so many people that had my back that have supported me. Um, you know, they've, they've just kept building me up and building me up for whatever reason. I don't know. And I'm grateful so much for what they've done. But yeah, I, I mean, when I walked out of prison, I had nothing, you know, I, I didn't have a, I couldn't rub two pennies together. My credit score was like 500. No one would, you know, the Disney corporation wasn't knocking at my door offering me a job, you know, yeah. that wasn't, that wasn't the case. So, you know, it's none of that was a, a reality for me. And I haven't looked at the future at all in these last five years. I've looked at the next day and yeah. then the next day, if that's something in front of me, like, you know, Patrick Donaher at ESPN calls and says, Hey, do you want to come out? That was the next day. I didn't, I didn't think that was coming. It just, yeah. it came out of nowhere. It came out yeah. of the work I was doing previously and the steps I've taken and the, the progress I've made. That's all it does. So I can't tell you where I'm going to be 10 years from now. I may not be anywhere, but, but I know I'm going to be sober or at least trying to be sober and trying to be the best possible version of myself as I can be. If I do that today, I'll lay my head down tonight and go at it again tomorrow. Well, that's just an awesome message. And you've had a little good karma post all of this. I know you're a huge golf fan like me and you're a huge Masters fan. And somehow you've, got, you've gotten on a little bit of a heater when it comes to getting into then getting uh, Masters badges. Well, the first three years out of prison, I put in for the lottery. You can put in for the lottery at masters.com. And I hit it three consecutive years. My brother's been putting in for 16 years and he's never hit it. <laughs> so I just, I thought there was some karma to that. Absolutely. I took my dad, I took my, dad, I took my brothers the first two, year, two years, the third year I took some buddies. We played some golf. It's the Mecca. It's the Mecca for me. Um, but I'm telling you right now, if, if you do the Pinehurst trip again, anytime soon, and I don't get an invite, 
you and I are going to, you and I are going to have beef. I'm just, we're going to have an issue. All right. right I got okay. it. Listen, All right. uh, deal. I promise you that now you're going to, I'm a lousy nine and you're probably a plus two, but I am no, I, a, I am a home course, uh, four. So okay. it doesn't travel really well. I went to Phoenix this weekend. It didn't, yeah. it didn't translate very well. <laughs> it never does. Shoot. It never I does. Shoot. I can yeah. shoot, uh, you know, had a 468 with eight birdies at my home course this summer, but it, it hasn't traveled well. So we'll see. Well, we'll work it out and I'll take five aside. Then we'll figure okay. it out from there. Right. Hey, listen, brother, uh, again, I mean this sincerely. I said it at the top and I'll, I'll close it the same way. One of the most fascinating athletes I've ever had to chronicle. So much respect for you for the way you have found a way to come back from the bottom and flourish. It, it, it really, it, it brightens my day to see this and know that you're doing so well. So I, I appreciate you being on, keep doing what you're doing and we'll do that Pinehurst trip for sure. Well, Hey buddy, I'm grateful for you too. I mean, I've burned a lot of bridges with people um, in the media and I think there have been a lot that may have been hesitant to um, support me and what I was doing. And, and you certainly were always one that supported me. So I appreciate you and everything you're doing. Um, so that's meaningful to me. So thank you very much. Great. But I'm still getting four side. Okay. okay. Uh, great to see you, pal. All the best, be well, be safe. And we will do that trip soon. All right. Yes, sir. So thanks again to Ryan Lee for telling his story. He's happy to share it and hopefully it'll help someone who may have to go through the same things he did. Speaking of going through things, next week's guest went through some things, including most defensive secondaries in the NFL, no problem. One of the greatest wide receivers to ever play, yet also one of the most controversial for a variety of reasons, perhaps fair and unfair. You know you're good when you don't have to go by your name, you just go by two letters, T-O. Terrell Owens will join us next week on Half Forgotten History. (laughs) 